0: 66, 6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, Dr. Chuck Missler's daily radio program connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler begins his session entitled, In the Promised Land. Well, we're going to get into Hour 6 of Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. This is the session where they're in the land. We've been through the creation. We've been through the call of Abraham. We've, the call of the, they, they go down to Egypt as a family. They come out as a nation they blow it at Kadesh Barnea and they wander for forty years. Now they're at the threshold. They're finally at the, at the gate the second time. First time they blew it, the second time they're going to do better. And interestingly enough, if you study the, uh, the summary of the Old Testament given by Stephen in Acts 7, it's very interesting to outline his sermon. They never let him finish, so you don't get, he doesn't get to his final point. But if you notice, his whole presentation was, uh, Israel always blows it the first time, makes it on the second. Blows it on the first time, makes it on the second. And of course, on Christ's first coming, they crucify him. He doesn't get to the second coming, but on the second coming, of course, they are going to petition him. and come, it, 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 They're going to be fulfilled. People ask me, why is Israel the chosen people? God chose them. And uh, it's clear that's what the whole Bible is all about. That's what the Old Testament is a story of a nation, and that nation brings forth a person, and the whole Bible is about that person, the person of Jesus Christ. The Creator Himself became man and dwelled among us. And that's what this is all about. But here we are in the land, and we're going to now be in the book of Joshua, and we're going to look at Judges and Ruth. Ruth occurs during the period of the Judges, and it's going to be the desert of the evening. But of course we're moving now from uh, Exodus to the time of David. So, Joshua, enters the land, overcomes the land, and in there we're going to have a little addenda. We'll talk about the sun standing still. A lot of Christians have a problem with this. The Bible says the the earth stopped rotating. No it doesn't. It says there's a long day. and You can do that by changing the procession of the earth a bit. But uh, we'll get to that there, but it's going to be a surprise to many. Then he enters the land, overcomes the land, and then divides the land. That's what the book of Joshua is all about. Then we get to the generation that followed Joshua. Joshua did, did all in all a pretty good job. But his descendants really mess up. We have 450 years of doing what was right in their own eyes. Whatever that means. We'll get to that. Sinning, suffering, repentance and deliverance is the pattern. Again and again. They sin. They suffer for it. They repent. A deliverer comes, come. Gives them some relief. But then the whole cycle repeats again. As a climax to this period, we get to Ruth. And, and this period that we're looking at is the bridge between the entering the land and the monarchy which will follow. Because after this will come Samuel and so forth. But the book of Ruth is a love story that is even celebrated in colleges as a piece of literature quite apart from the Bible. But as you get into it, you're going to be every line is full of surprises and we'll get to there. Joshua entering the land. He actually crosses the Jordan with his gang and the first thing he does at Gilgal is a surprise. He circumcises the nation. It's a shock to realize after all of that. They were uncircumcised. The first generation died away. The children, in large measure, weren't circumcised. These are Israelis. And uh, so they have a circumcision thing. It's also here where the manna ceases. Up till now, they've gotten the supernatural bread every day. That now stops because they're now in the land, the land of milk and honey. But also as they enter land, they get a very, very interesting night visitor that most people miss and we'll get into that. And that's the first five chapters. Verses 6-12, through they're going to overcome the land. And then they're going to occupy the land and they'll enjoy the victory of faith. So, entering the land. They cross the Jordan. Joshua, among other things, makes a little mound of twelve stones. He actually does that twice, by the way. And this monument of twelve stones, many people miss in the New Testament, in John chapter 1, John the Baptist is baptizing in the Jordan. In fact, in John 1 verse 28 it says, These things were done at Bethabara beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The word Bethabara means the house of passage. John the Baptist is baptizing the very place that Joshua brings the people into the land. When you get to Matthew, It quotes John the Baptist saying something additional. It says, We have Abraham to our father, for I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. When people read that, they don't connect the dots. The stones he's probably pointing to are probably the very stones that Joshua set up, one stone for each of the twelve tribes. It closes the loop for you if you follow me watch for those things as you study your Bible. It'll tie it together. And then of course you have the circumcision at Gilgal. The manna ceases then. And we have this strange visitor. Now this visitor, I visualize this as uh, as Joshua wandering around in the evening one night, and he encounters this guy with a sword drawn. And Joshua challenges him like a sentry. Are you for us or for our enemies? And the person there says, I am the captain of the Lord's host. Now don't let that word throw you. When we hear captain, most of us in the military think of a field grade officer. The word captain here means the top guy. He's the commander of the Lord's hosts. And he's got a sword drawn. <laughs> he tells Joshua, take off your shoes, you're on hallowed ground. Well. First of all, you need to understand, when you read your Bible, you'll discover that angels do not allow themselves to be worshipped. Several times, uh, Daniel, John, wherever, they go to worship, see thou do it not. You with me? Angels do not allow themselves to be worshipped. There's one exception. That's an angel who got, because he allowed that, got into a lot of trouble. Got Satan, we'll get there when the time comes. But angels do not allow themselves to be worshipped. This guy commands Joshua to worship him. In fact, uses a phrase that he knew Joshua would associate with what happened 40 years ago by the burning bush. Okay? And also on Mount Sinai, where Joshua was with Moses, by the way. Take off your shoes, you're on hallowed ground. So, obviously, Joshua connects the dots. This is the guy that's going to actually lead the battle the next morning of Jericho. The nation Israel is populated by originally 10 tribes, now 7 and that the most powerful of them were the Amorites, and the capital of the Amorites was Jericho. Ben Yarat, which is the uh, means the house of the moon god. House of the moon god. That's what Jericho means. Where is the capital of the PLO today? In Jericho. What's the symbol of Islam? The moon god. Yaw Kind of interesting, isn't it? The conquest of Canaan. Conquest of Jericho involves the failure at Ai, the battle of Beth Horon, the division of land. We can't go through it all, obviously. I've taken just the highlights here. The conquest of Jericho. Bet Yerah, the house of the moon god. It's interesting. Joshua sends in two spies. Why didn't he send twelve like Moses did? Well, maybe there were ten of them were useless. two were enough if you had the right ones, right? But did they bring back intelligence upon which he built his battle plan? I don't think so. I wouldn't call them spies. What did they accomplish? They got Rahab saved. Call them witnesses. So he sends in two So Okay. Shelter, and they're sheltered by Rahab. So I'm going to call these guys witnesses. You'll see why in a minute. Then the battle plan. Can you I want you to visual, I often I, I once talked to the guy that manages I happened to be sitting on a plane with the guy that h- handles uh, Bill Cosby stuff. I said, you know, Bill Cosby did such a fabulous job on the Noah, remember that thing he did with Noah? Uh, he, he should take Joshua's staff meeting. Can you imagine the staff meeting? They're going to go against the capital of the most powerful adversary, and here's this battle plan. We're going to march around the city once a day for six days, keeping silent. Then on the seventh day, we're going to march around seven times. And then after the seventh time, we're going to blow our trumpets and yell and the wall's going to fall down. Really? I mean, can you visualize his general saying, uh, the boss is off his rocker. The lights are on, but no one's home. What's going on here? That's the battle plan. And I don't know how he sold it to his troops, but he obviously did. But he's also told don't take any spoil. Don't take any accursed thing. And and of course, you know the story of, of Jericho. That's exactly what they do, right? The next challenge is Ai. By now they're feeling their oats. They're feeling, they're very, they got a, a lot of confidence in themselves. Big mistake. Don't have confidence in yourself. Always. A, and they underestimated the enemy. That Well, 3,000 guys should be enough for this one. And they get clobbered. They actually lose 36, but, and of course, accomplish nothing. This is the only loss in their 7 year campaign, is it Ai. Why? Joshua prays. The Lord says unto Joshua, Get thee up! Why do you lie there on your face? <laughs> I love this. Do your homework in other words. Turns out they, they found out that Achan, one of the guys, had smuggled some forbidden loot. He violated God's injunction. He broke the rules and because of that they failed. That's scary by the way. God means what He says and says what He means, right? We need to learn that. So the sack of Ai follows. After stoning Achan and his family and his belongings, a second attack was undertaken. This time they take 10 times as many people, 30,000 guys, with a 5,000-man ambush force, and they wipe out the city. Big success. There are lots of other battles up north, but the big, the watershed battle, the battle of Midway, so to speak, of the conquest, is the battle of Beth Horon. The kings, by now, have confederated themselves under a guy who calls himself Adonai Zedek, the Lord of Righteousness, really. He's the king of Jerusalem. He gets defeated in this battle by stones of fire from heaven. In fact, the day isn't long enough for them to complete the route. So God, so, so Joshua asked the God to have the sun stand still. Make the day longer so he can finish the job. The sun's commanded to stand still in order to give them time. And the scripture says the sun and the moon extended an entire length of a a, a day, an entire period of time. The kings, by the way, subsequently run and hide in a cave and are dealt with later. And this will complete the southern strategy and the rest of the campaign is mop-up. But let's get back to this sun standing still. A lot of people are upset by that. In fact, the more you know about science and, and our solar system, the more troublesome that is. You, can't, you tend to visualize the, the earth stopping, the inertia. You, you, you just can't, it just, you just can't visualize it. Let's back, let's realize, first of all, by the way, that this, the earth does not have to stop spinning to have the day longer. A change in precession would accomplish th- that, apparently. But one thing, as you start studying this, you discover some interesting things. All ancient calendars, I can give you 14 of them were originally based on 360 day years. All ancient calendars change after 701 BC for some unexplained reason. Another thing you'll notice if you do your homework is the planet Mars terrified, just terrified the ancient cultures. The ancient cultures worshipped Mars. He was called the God of War. That still occurs in our language, because we speak of martial arts. The word is still there. It's saying the same thing. There is a hypothesis by some experts, some scientific experts, that there was a near pass-by in the orbit of Mars and the Earth, and let me get into that a little bit. The belief now, by some, is that Earth and Mars were originally on resonant orbits. Now resonance is a concept you people in music know about. If you have a tuning fork on one side of the room and you hit it, a tuning fork of the same frequency, and the other side of the room will pick up on that. They'll get in resonance. That's the way your radio tunes in certain stations. It makes your circuits resonant to the frequency of that particular station. So that's what they're. Con- well, they've discovered, as they've learned about orbital mechanics uh, in our modern age, they've discovered orbits also influence each other, and they can be in orbital relationships uh, in uh, resonant relationships. And the belief is that Earth had a 360-day year and Mars a 720. They were on on, on uh, resonant orbits. However, they had a, the orbits were such they had near passbys of each other every 108 years, and they would give one would give energy to the other depending which one's coming in or which one's going out. And it turns out by modeling this, it accounts for catastrophic events on a number of occasions through history. At least seven of them. That's what put them on the trail of this thing. These energy transfers apparently stabilized, finally, in 701 B.C. And a change in precession is all necessary. Let's take a look at this. Earth is on an orbit around the sun, an elliptical orbit. And Mars is also on elliptical orbit around the sun. It's a resonant orbit. Earth's on 360 days, Mars 720. In the spring, typically on March 20 or 21st, Every 108 years, there'll be a near passby. In the spring one, it ha- happens after perihelion, after the closest part of the sun. The one that's ahead loses a little energy. The earth gains a little, Mars loses a little. The second pass-by, again 108 years between these things, is in the fall, October 25th. This time Mars is coming from the outside of aphelion, that is the furthest from the sun. It passes behind the earth causing the Earth to lose some energy, Mars to pick up some energy, sort of a slingshot effect, sort of. What this causes then, this, th- these transfers occur every times, every 108 years, some amount, some add, some le- less. And this has all been modeled, by the way, to some extent, quite a detailed extent. When they finally stabilize, the Earth is no longer 360 days, it's 365 and a quarter days. Mars is no longer 720, it's now 687. But that means the calendars on the Earth need adjustment. The Romans, of course, add five and a quarter days. Other calendars do it slightly differently. The, the Hebrew ones do. I really They add, uh, they add a month, seven times every 19 years, a very weird thing. And all the rabbis have books, they expect, why did Hezekiah do it that way? And uh, they don't explain, why did he have to do anything at all? Why did it have to change? They don't talk about that. Well this, this has been very detailed, it makes some very interesting reading. But um, and, and it sounds like just a conjecture, except thanks to Jonathan Swift, it seems to be substantiated. Let's back up a little talk about early telescope technology. 1610 is when Galileo invented the telescope and discovered the four moons of Jupiter and the Saturn's rings. Pretty obvious. In about 1781, Herschel has a better telescope by then. He discovers Uranus. 1787, he finds two moons of Uranus. 1789, two more m- moons of Uranus. And 1846, Levie discovers Neptune and one of its moons. It's in 1877 when Asaph Hall with a brand new telescope at the U.S. Naval Observatory discovers the two moons of Mars and makes astronomical history. They didn't know it had two moons. The reason they didn't, they're very, very small. One is only eight miles in diameter and it's almost black. It has a reflectivity or albedo of only 3%. What's strange about this is that the small one is going backwards. It's the only one that goes backwards in the entire solar system. Most of you know G- Gulliver's Travels, writing by Jonathan Swift. He, l- he lived between 1667 and 1745. And in 1726 he wrote Gulliver's Travels. There are several voyages of Gulliver in his books. We all know the Lilliputes, the little people. That's the one that makes the cute little movies and stuff. By the way, these things were intended as political satire, not children's stories. Through the years they've become popular so- children's stories. But In his third voyage of of Gulliver, he's said to go to a place called Laputa where the astronomers there brag that they know about the two moons of Mars, and the astronomers in London don't. And they go on talk about the size, the revolution, and the orbits of the two moons of Mars, within a 20% accuracy, by the way. You say, well, so what? Well, the problem is this. Jonathan Swift published Gulliver's Travels in 1726. 151 years before they were discovered by astronomers. Now, how do you explain that? Well, one conjecture is, well, he was just lucky. I don't think so. they tw- the, the the numbers are in, in his little story, and and uh, very, surprisingly within 20 percent. And one of, the fact that one's going backwards is is, is astonishing. Well, how would he how would he guess that? So the other possibility is that, did he guess it? I don't think so. Did he really know that? I don't think so. He knew Herschel. These people knew each other. And the astronomy world didn't know there were two moons of Mars. And I don't think Jonathan Swift did either. I suspect he drew on some legends to color and embroider his political satire. That's really, uh, that's all going. What he didn't realize is that the things he was drawing upon were eyewitness accounts. And in order to see the two moons of Mars, Mars would have to be close enough to the Earth to see, with a naked eye, the two moons of Mars. And so this is a strange corroboration of the theory of the long day. Let's go back to Joshua. There's a third of a million men at Beth Horon. On October 25th of 1404 BC, Mars is on a polar pass at only 70,000 miles from the Earth. It appears to rise 50 times the size of the moon. There are severe earthquakes and land tides. By the way, do you know they're land tides? They're only about an inch, so you don't notice them, but they're there. They can be measured. Anyway, here we have severe earthquakes and land tides. There's a polar shift of about five degrees, which would lengthen the day. And meteors follow about two to three hours later at about 30,000 miles an hour. And the meteors are amazing because they hit only Israel's enemies. I want you to think about that. God put them in orbit whenever. But in such a way as to anticipate the enemies of Israel to act they act as you know, like fire from heaven and wipe out Israel's enemies. Bizarre. What's interesting is that this legend of the long day isn't just in the Bible. We're indebted to Immanuel Vilikowsku, who discovered the legends in China of the long night about the same time. But the campaign, of course, in the south, we have the various treaty with the Gibeonites, the Battle of the beth horn and all that. And then there's some quick surprise attacks they get into in the south. Uh, in the north, we have uh, Hazar's Alliance, a slower guerrilla war going up up there. But in any case, before the thing's over, they uh, conquer the land. The book of Joshua has also been contrasted with the book of Ephesians. A victorious Christian living. In Joshua, we have Israel. In Ephesians we have the church. In Joshua, they're entering and possessing. In Ephesians, we are to enter and possess our possession. In uh, Joshua, there's an earthly inheritance. Ephesians speaks of our heavenly inheritance. Joshua, it's given in Abraham. Of course, in Ephesians, it's given in Christ. Each is opened by a divinely appointed leader. Each is given grace and received by faith. Each uh, has a sphere of uh, striking divine revelations in both books. Alan Redpath has made a book called Victorious Christian Living. He contrasts the two books as as parallels. Each is a scene of warfare and conflict. Ephesians, of course, has Ephesians 6, our armor of God. We are also in a warfare, a spiritual warfare. So that's interesting. But there's another comparison. I want to tell you frankly up front, I can't find anyone that agrees with me. And I don't mean they disagree with me, but I can't find any commentary that has, highlights the fact that Joshua is a model of the book of Revelation. First of all, Joshua is Yehoshua. It's the name of Jesus on the book. Yehoshua is a variant, in effect, of Ye- Yeshua. In each book you've got a military commander dispossessing the land of its usurpers. In Joshua it's the land of Canaan, and Revelation it's the planet Earth. In each case it's a seven year campaign, and it's against seven of an original ten nations in each case. What's strange is you study Jericho, the Torah is ignored in Jericho. They're not supposed to do anything on the Sabbath? That's ignored in Jericho. In the Torah, it says the Levites are not to go to war. They lead the procession in Jericho. And I could go on and on. And it's interesting, Joshua first sends in two witnesses. What did they accomplish? Not battle plan intelligence. They got Rahab saved. Who gets on the family tree of, of David, by the way. And there's seven trumpet events. They keep silent until the seventh deal here. It's interesting, when you get to Revelation chapter 8, before the trumpet judgments, there's silence in heaven for half an hour. You've got the same, echoing the same structure here. It goes more than that. In Joshua, the enemies are confederated under a leader in Jerusalem, Adonai Zedek, the Lord of Righteousness. Of course, in Revelation, you have the Antichrist. They're ultimately defeated with hailstones of fire in heaven, in both cases, with signs in the sun and the moon and so forth. And in both cases, the kings hide in caves. In fact, Revelation 6. Rocks fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. The parallel once you see a little of it, when you study Joshua and study Revelation you'll be startled with how apparently, deliberately, structurally parallel the two books are. Well, after the conquest of the land, of course, they divide the land. The tribes are allocated their portions by casting lots. We've got Manasseh up there in the north, and Gad, and the half tribe of Reuben, uh, half tribe of Manasseh, and Gad, and Reuben on the, that are east of the Jordan. Ephraim, of course, it becomes idiomatic of the whole northern group. Dan is given a place that's west of Benjamin, but he can't hold it. And when Samson finally dies, who doesn't accomplish much, but did a bunch of pranks, they can't hang on to it. So they go up north to a place called Laish. And so Dan really settles in the north part of the country, but don't, they don't really help much. During the judges, Deborah upset because Dan doesn't even leave his ships. What's he doing in ships in the first place? And so Dan spins off from the commonwealth of Israel. Which is one of the reasons why he's not mentioned in Revelation when the twelve tribes are listed. Strangely enough, there's a whole thing about that we'll deal with when we get there. Then we got Benjamin and Judah in the south and Simeon to the south. So we have the various tribes. Now the Levites don't get an inheritance of land. They get 48 cities instead because the Lord's of their inheritance. Six of those cities are designated as cities of refuge. Three east of the Jordan, three west of the Jordan. And we want to talk a little bit about cities of refuge. All these strange things, they sound strange to our ears until we understand how they point to Jesus Christ. The idea of a city of refuge, see they didn't have prisons. They didn't have a police force. If you killed somebody, the next of kin came after you. That was the, that was the way it worked. Well, suppose it was an accidental death, what we would call manslaughter. Well, if you accidentally killed someone, what you did immediately is you hightailed it to one of the cities of refuge. I'm assuming now this is not premeditated murder, if it's what we call manslaughter. And what you did, you, if you could get to the city of refuge, you were secured there in safety from the avenger of blood. The next of kin would be after you, but if, you're in, if you can take refuge in the city of refuge, if you convince the city fathers this, this was a, a manslaughter thing, as long as you're in the city, you're safe. If you left the city, you're fair game. That's why it's called a city of refuge. And this situation stayed as it was until the high priest down in Jerusalem died. Now you'll look at most commentaries, it's you know, just a quaint tribal custom here. But wait a minute. What's, this got, what's the high priest got to do with the situation one way or the other? You follow me? It's a, a strange situation. Well let's, take a, let's analyze this a little bit. See if it applies to us. Let's talk about the crucifixion of Christ. Was it premeditated murder or was it manslaughter? From God's point of view it was premeditated. He was foreordained before the foundation. It was by His d- determinate counsel and so forth. From our point of view, what did Jesus say? Father, forgive them for what? No, not what we do. So we can use that and say, okay, this is at least man, from our point of view, it's manslaughter, not premeditated." Okay. So the next question is, is where is our city of refuge? It's in Jesus Christ, of course. For how long is they stay Until the high priest died. Who is our high priest? What did he die? Right then. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Missler teaching through his series entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, here on 6640. If you would like further information about materials available from Dr. Missler, please contact us through this station or visit our website at khouse.org. Until next time, when Dr. Missler continues this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.